So this week, we don't have a podcast episode based on any particular news story. We do think there is a tendency for a bad news bias. Uh, In other words, what's reported in the news tends to be things which are going wrong, things which are bad in the world, uh, because those are the things which we're, we're most attracted to as nuggets of information. But it's also important to think about the longer term processes underpinning much of the world today. So this week, our podcast will be on the environment and civilization, the problem of climate change and potential solutions to that problem. We hope you enjoy it. One of the first things we need to address when talking about the environment is something called the naturalistic fallacy. Now, this is something a lot of listeners will have heard before. Some listeners may have even committed it before, which is to assume that anything that is natural is good and anything that is artificial is bad. And you will see this all the time in things like adverts, which will advertise that there is nothing artificial uh, in a yogurt, which is remarkable I think because I don't know where you find yogurts just lying around in nature Um, or that something is all natural and an idea that natural things are inherently good and anything that's artificial or made by humans is inherently bad and before we can have a sensible discussion about climate change and climate policy and environmental policy um, we need to point out that this is not true. Yeah and I mean building from that there's obviously loads of things which are perfectly natural like dying from smallpox or being eaten by a lion which are horrific and loads of things which are incredibly unnatural like wearing shoes or clothes um, or even listening to this podcast on Spotify or off the website uh, those are all things which are vastly unnatural but we hope good absolutely (laughs) so um, the reason why this is so applicable to climate change is that there is a narrative out there that you see a lot in the news and on the internet that there was this previous sort of Uh, natural idyll where everyone lived in harmony with the environment and the environment wasn't damaged and ever since the industrial revolution we've been slowly replacing that with um, factories belching smoke with coal-fired power stations heating up the world with all the cute fluffy animals being killed and um, generally heading towards some sort of um, Blade Runner type dystopia and It's really important that people understand that this is just not true. Um, The world is a far, far better place since the Industrial Revolution. And the quality of human life up until the Industrial Revolution was monumentally awful in a way that most um, most people alive now were born too late to realize and again, without going back and looking at the statistics, like we were saying with, with vaccinations and, and um, the number of people contracting diseases, if unless we go back and look at the statistics, we don't necessarily understand how bad life was. So, to see how well listeners uh, and Jerome understand uh, how much the world has changed... This, this over should be the last... fun slash embarrassing. <laughs> how much the world has changed over the last 200 years uh, and how much better uh, quality of life is nowadays. Um, Let's have a small quiz. Uh, So we hope you can play along at home and give your own guesses. So first up, extreme poverty, defined as the number of people 
living on less than $2 a day mm-hmm. by 2011 prices. Cool. In the year 1820, yeah. what percentage of the global population lived in extreme poverty? 95. 94? Oh, I'm, I'm worried. You can see my, <laughs> my answer here. I'm looking in the other direction. Um, in 1990, what was the percentage of the population living in extreme poverty? Oh, there's been some big strides recently. Um, I'd say 40. Very good. 36. Close. Very close. And in 2015, 20. Uh, that's the first first one. Oh, it's down to 10%. Wow. Still, obviously, yeah. awful that 10% of humanity lives in extreme poverty. But before the Industrial Revolution, the vast majority of people did. And now it's now it's the exception. Okay, round two, life expectancy. Same dates again. In 1820, how long could the average person in the world expect to live? 35. Might be a bit low there. <laughs> no, it's, you're too high. Too high, 29. Wow. Wow. 29 years. That's awful. Uh, in 1990, what was global life expectancy? 50. Too pessimistic. It was 64. That's gone up a lot. Yeah, and in 2015? I feel there's diminishing returns, so I'm going to go for 70. 70. I'm yeah. Stick on 70. 72. Okay. Good work. But again, the story is... That the, the average person in 1820 could only live, expect to live till 29. The average person, you know. Globally. <laughs> globally. Well. Yeah. Um, but nowadays it's 72. And while a lot of listeners will hopefully consider 72 to be too young, and again, that's an average, a lot of people die younger than that, um, I think a lot of people will be pleasantly shocked by that and think yeah. that getting into your 70s or your 80s or even your 90s is a sort of a, a rich world luxury. But 72 is the, the international average. Okay, third round. Um, a even more depressing topic, child mortality. Oof. So this is the percentage of children who died before their fifth birthday. So it's when I say child mortality, we're not even defining child as 18. It's under five. Yeah. In 1820, what percentage of children died before their fifth birthday? I'm going to go relatively high. I'm going to go 55. Slightly less, 43, Okay, but still atrocious. And a large part of the reason why life expectancy was so low, 43% of children make past five. In 1990, what was the number? Globally, I'm going to say 10. Very good, 9%. Okay. 9%. And in 2015? Uh, again, diminishing returns, I'd say 6. It's down to 4. 4. Really good. And again, still a tragedy that 4% of children die before their fifth birthday. But compare that to 43%, we can't avoid the conclusion that something in the last 200 years has radically, radically improved human well-being and reduced human suffering. Having said all that and um, thinking optimistically about the, the positive changes that the Industrial Revolution has wrought for humanity, it's obviously clear that the Industrial Revolution has had some negative impacts, primarily in the sense of climate change. So hopefully we don't have to convince any of our listeners that climate change is real, um, but to present a very simplified uh, mechanism of how climate change works, uh, industrial activity generally admits greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, 
Greenhouse gases means that more solar radiation is absorbed and retained within the Earth's system, and that causes uh, warming. Uh, warming overall, but unpredictable consequences on the whole. We may see temperatures drop in some places, um, as well as wider patterns like more floods and droughts and desertification. Uh, and these negative consequences are becoming increasingly apparent. Uh, we can see that there have been many wildfires across the world in the past few years in California, in Australia, even within the Arctic Circle in Russia. Um, some people have controversially attributed the recent cold snap in Texas uh, to changes in the polar vortex. We can see that there's more flooding, more extreme weather events and storms. Um, and this begs the question, why is it so difficult to tackle climate change if climate change is such a serious threat? Why have states not done more to deal with it. Um, and there are a number of different explanations for that, and they broadly fall into two camps. One is the, the camp of shallow green ecology, and the other is the camp of deep green ecology. So for deep green ecologists, the environment, nature, is something which is of inherent moral worth. It's something we should protect for its own sake. Um, and economic growth is fundamentally incompatible with protecting nature. As long as we aim for economic growth and material goods, we can't protect nature simultaneously. Nature will degrade as we, uh, as we improve our economic condition and our living standards. In the shallow green approach, it is possible to marry the two. It is possible to have uh, development and economic growth and an increase in living standards alongside protection of the environment and nature. Uh, this is a concept often known as sustainable development. And in this model, we can find managerial solutions to climate change. So better technology, better interstate regulation of emissions, uh, ways to create global frameworks like the Kyoto and Paris agreements to reduce global emissions, and hopefully one day actually start to take carbon out of the atmosphere. Now, we mentioned earlier that some listeners might have an idea of uh, a sort of idyllic past in which humanity was one with nature that we need to go back to and as we've said that's not true but there is another argument that's behind or another narrative that's behind uh, deep ecology that humanity's uh, improvements to quality of life over the last 200 years have happened in tandem with an increase in uh, certainly CO2 emissions and other greenhouse gases that has caused environmental damage and that the two are intrinsically married and the fundamental point, I think it's fair to say, of the rest of the podcast is to try and prove to listeners that that is not necessarily true. An important point to make at this juncture is that this podcast is going to be about climate change rather than the environment in general. And another common mistake that we often see in the news and online is a conflation of the two. The idea that the environment is sort of one thing and that every tonne of CO2 emitted, every tonne of methane emitted, every plastic bottle dumped in the ocean, every fish that's overfished, every wild animal that's killed, every tree that's chopped down is, is fundamentally the same problem. And it, it's harming sort of one monolithic thing, living thing out there called the environment. And if we're going to get anywhere, we're talking about climate change and why it's a problem and what the problem is and how we can solve it, we need to have a nuanced enough view of the environment to break it down into a number of different uh, systems and processes and um, entities which 
while all uh, linked together and while all uh, fundamentally happening on the same planet are different things, have different problems, and therefore have different solutions. And so in this particular podcast, rather than trying to take on all of those, rather than talking about um, extinction of species, overfishing, plastic pollution, not to say that those aren't problems, we're going to focus on climate change specifically because it's we think it's unhelpful and it muddies the waters to merge those all into one and talk about them at the same time. And I do think another misconception that we have to tackle at this point is the notion that dealing with climate change is about saving the planet or the idea that we are killing the planet or we are killing nature, we are killing the environment um, through anthropogenic human-caused or human-induced climate change. Um, Again, that's a common misconception, but not the case. When we think about climate change, this is something which will primarily affect human beings. Um, it is very unlikely, even in the worst case scenarios of four, five, six degrees of warming, that we will wipe out life on Earth. It's also unlikely that we will wipe out human life entirely, uh, because many parts of the planet in those scenarios, such as Russia, Canada, Alaska, um, in the far future Antarctica, will still be perfectly habitable. So we're not talking about the extinction of humanity when we talk about climate change, but we are talking about something that will be incredibly disruptive which will render large parts of the globe uninhabitable uh, for humans through floods, deserts, uh, expanding wildfires, extreme storms, and so an incredible amount of suffering. But firstly, it would not mean the extinction of humans as a species. And secondly, it would not mean the destruction of the planet. We don't have the capacity to do that. Yeah, and as we said before, it's always important, and this is, I think, an underlying uh, rule of... Uh, the Violet podcast generally, it's always important to have a nuanced view of these problems. And arguing or viewing climate change as not a problem is is wrong. It's just plain incorrect. Viewing climate change as a fundamental life or death will destroy the whole of humanity uh, and, and it's an bring on the apocalypse is also just wrong. But that arguing against one of those positions is not arguing for the other it's perfectly logical. In fact, it's true to lie somewhere in the middle and say, this is a massive challenge. Uh, left unchecked, it will cause huge amounts of misery and human suffering, and therefore we need to do something about it. But it's also not the end times. And to generalise from climate change specifically, um, I think we should acknowledge we can, we can understand problems and tackle them and solve them whilst also acknowledging nuances uh, in those problems. I think it's also important to point out um, in terms of why we should care about climate change, in case there are any listeners out there who um, sort of committed meat eaters and not really bothered uh, whether the pandas survive or not, is to uh, double down on this idea that it's about humanity and that when we talk about, as we will in a minute, the trade-offs that are introduced by environmental policies that potentially reduce people's living standards um, in exchange for some sort of environmental benefit, what we're not doing is trading off human welfare for the welfare of some weird half-deity thing called the environment that, as we've said already, doesn't exist. What we're doing is we're trading off standard of living for people alive now in exchange for 
an improvement in the environment that will lead to benefits in the standard of living of people in the future. And even if you don't particularly care about wildlife and the environment are not generally minded that way, that shouldn't matter in terms of support for um, climate policy and reducing climate change because it's fundamentally a human problem and it's about improving human lives. And building from that, it is worth noting that in many cases, this is not necessarily a, a trade-off that exists. It is possible to maintain and even improve living standards today without reducing um, living standards in the future. Uh, a really good example of this is if we look at uh, per capita CO2 emissions in the USA since 1990. Uh, the USA's GDP per capita between 1990 and 2017 increased by just over 46%. CO2 emissions based on consumption reduced by 14%, and CO2 emissions based on production reduced by just over 20%. So this is fairly clear evidence to show that whilst in the past burning coal may have been the only way to generate um, you know, generate power and uh, power industry, and in that sense there was a very clear correlation between increased living standards and reducing living standards in the future for people suffering from climate change. Uh, today, because of the breadth of technology we have available uh, and many other mechanisms which we'll discuss, it is possible to increase living standards whilst actually reducing carbon emissions and thereby not damaging living standards of those in the future who are yet to be born. And technology creates a difficult mental balancing act, I think, in that Looking back over history, and as we've said before, with the changes since the Industrial Revolution, um, technology does improve. The way that things have happened in the past is not the way that things will happen in the future, is not the way that things happen now. And so what we can't do is look back at what's happened in the past and how economic growth in the past has been um, complemented by increases in CO2 emissions, increases in greenhouse gas emissions that are now causing climate change. What we can't do is think that because that happened in the past, it must happen in the future. Technology will change, things will be done differently, industries will change, people migration will happen, people will move to different parts of the world. The future will not be the same as the past. But equally, on the other hand, we can't necessarily um, sit on our hands and think that, well, technology will save us all. Um, we do still need to think about the processes and the policies that bring about that technology and use that technology and the other things we can do as well. Um, and I guess to, to further illustrate that um, and to show that this dichotomy between growth at all costs or primitivism is a false dichotomy, uh, if we look at emissions in the developed world, uh, in Europe they peaked in 1990. In the United States, they peaked in uh, 2005. In North America, excluding the United States, they peaked in 2007. So, the the rate of greenhouse gas emissions in the developing what sorry in the developed world uh, is already coming down, despite living standards continuing to increase. There is an argument, though, which is put forward by many people that even though emissions in the developed world have begun to decline. Uh, they're still accelerating rapidly in the developing world uh, in places like India, China, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia. Um, and as a result of a worldwide growing population, we are facing an inexorable and inevitable 
uh, rush towards increased greenhouse emissions as we chase, or as the developing world uh, chases higher standards of living and economic growth. And therefore, as the world population booms, climate change is an inevitable and looming disaster. Um, this is something which I think is worth disproving head on. Yeah, it's really surprising how many people um, still believe in a sort of Malthusian future. Um, to explain in the simplest terms what his idea was, he noted, looking at looking at the data that was available to him at the time, 200 years ago, um, that food production tended to increase uh, linearly and uh, population in the world was increasing exponentially. And so there would come a point where population growth would accelerate far beyond the ability of the world to produce enough food, resulting in mass starvation. Of course, Malthus wasn't uh, proposing something ridiculous at the time, given the data that was available to him. It was a reasonably sensible uh, suggestion. But we've had over 200 years of history since then to realise that what he said is not true. And it's not true on both sides of his argument. First of all, food production has not continued to increase at the rate at which it was increasing when he was alive. He lived before the Industrial Revolution. He wasn't privy to the remarkable changes to technology and the economy that we've had since then. And food production now is far, far, far beyond um, what he would have expected it to be at this point in history. Secondly, he's also wrong from the point of view of how populations grow uh, over time, because he was unaware of something that's known to um, demographers and sociologists and geographers as the demographic transition. It hadn't happened when he was alive. And the demographic transition is simply that um, most countries or societies go through four questionably five, but we'll leave that out because it's controversial, four stages through their population growth. So in pre-industrial societies, birth rates are high. And as we've discussed before, uh, people live in extreme poverty, they have extremely low life expectancies, and especially child mortality is terrifyingly high. And so to overcome all of these things, given that um, children are very likely not to survive to adulthood. In order to have a family that survives to adulthood, people have a lot of children. It's also the case that in a lot of these societies, both now and historically, children are a valuable asset in the fact that they can go out and they can work and they can provide for the family. And not having enough children means potentially not having enough labour in the family to earn enough to live. That becomes especially true when people get older, and in societies where there's no sort of social security for the elderly, the only way in which they can keep themselves um, alive when they're too old to work and too old to earn is by having children who look after them. So in stage one of the demographic transition, we have very high birth rates and very high death rates. The trigger that sends us into stage two is improvements in medical conditions and improvements in life expectancy possibly through improvements uh, economically as well that mean people have better access to food and medicines and it's not just a technological change, but nevertheless, death rates start to fall. And as death rates start to fall, people continue to have a lot of children. 
because people take a long time to get used to this idea. Um, how many children is expected as normal is a sort of a cultural norm that takes a long time to change. And as we mentioned at the beginning, people tend not to notice slow, gradual changes, even if these are really big, important, fundamental um, processes in human history. If it's not a short, sharp, snappy, dramatic uh, news story, people tend not to notice it. So as uh, death rates begin to fall, birth rates stay high. And it's in that situation that you have high um, population growth. In stage three, death rates begin to fall to their low level of a developing country and birth rates begin to follow. We have this um, delay between death rates falling and birth rates falling. And again, in stage three, we have incredibly high population growth. Stage four, birth rates finally fall to the level where they're roughly similar to death rates and the population stops growing again because cultural norms about family size have caught up with the reality of living standards and how long people can expect to live. Now, in most of the developed, and actually in most of the developing world, we are now reaching stage four. In large parts of the developing world, however, um, countries are still in stage three, where death rates are falling, birth rates are falling too, but not quite catching up with them. However, the fact is that there is no society left on Earth that is still in stage one. There are a couple, you could argue, are in stage two. There are a lot in stage three. The majority are in stage four. But as the world continues to go through the demographic transition, and as more and more of the world heads towards stage four, population growth in the world will stabilize. The question is at what level and how soon, but population growth will stabilize and the world's population will stop growing. And to, to bring that, that very long and informative rant back to the topic of climate change, uh, the central point is that as population growth rates decline and as population growth rates stabilize, um, greenhouse uh, gas emissions, the growth rates in those will also begin to stabilize. Something that's worth pointing out is that it is possible to accelerate that transition from stage two to stage four and bring down birth rates. Um, and it has been shown that the most effective way to do that is not by natalist policies like those of uh, China with the, the one-child policy forcing people to only have one child and uh, imposing financial penalties for those that have more or enforcing uh, abortions or sterilizations. Um but it's through education of women uh, and through increased women's rights and increased access to contraception. Because those things, having more educated women, uh, having uh, greater access to contraception, means that women generally naturally choose to have less children uh, because they have other things to worry about, like their career. They're more aware of their rights. They're more aware of the fact that they are not simply baby-making machines. So there, there is a great deal of evidence to support this. In Iran, for example, since the 1990s, there's been a concerted program to reduce birth rates, completely voluntary, uh, involving religious leaders, uh, education for the, for the public, uh, extension of, of education to, to women, free access to contraception, and as a result, fertility rates have, have halved um, in just one decade. In Bangladesh, uh, average birth rates have fallen from six children in the 1980s 
uh, per woman to just two to date. So it's clear that female education, uh, female empowerment and access to contraception has a huge impact on birth rates and in accelerating this stage four, sorry, stage two to stage four transition. And that in turn has a massive impact on climate change because uh, although the, the rate of emissions per person across the world varies massively depending on which country they're in, uh, it's undeniable that having less people means that there are less emissions. So we've dispelled the myth that climate change is only possible to be tackled by turning back the clock to some uh, idyllic past that didn't exist. We've dispelled the myth that climate change might be solved by ripping up the um, benefits, the fruits of the Industrial Revolution. And we've also dispelled the myth that climate change might be solved by um, slashing population growth or, or having some sort of apocalyptic event that removes people from the planet. Um, what we have said throughout this is that that changes to technologies and changes to policies, um, as boring as that might sound, as much of a cop-out as that might sound, is the way forward. So the next thing we need to get into is what are those policies? What are those technologies? There are many technologies and many policies that we could discuss. We could wax lyrical about this for hours, but some of the highlights um, would be pointing out ways in which we can reduce the rate of carbon emissions um, and the rate of greenhouse gas emissions. One of the prominent issues which is uh, often underreported or underacknowledged is HDFCs or hydrochlorofluorocarbons, um, which are used in refrigerating units and, and fridges. Um, those replaced uh, CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, which were damaging to other aspects of the environment, the ozone layer, for, for other reasons, and they were phased out in favour of HCFCs. Uh, presently, HCFCs are extremely damaging in the in the realm of climate change. They're orders of magnitude um, more effective than carbon dioxide at trapping uh, heat within the Earth's system. And when we discard old fridges and refrigeration units, and simply through bad design, a lot of this is leaked into the atmosphere uh, and causes serious harm uh, via climate change. So one very simple way that we could put a significant dent into climate change would be better management of HCFCs. And we've already gone some way towards that. Uh, the Kigali Accords uh, negotiated a few years ago uh, have compelled countries to make legally binding cuts to their HCFC emissions. Uh, and in turn, that's accounted for a reduction in the rate of greenhouse gas emissions. A potentially very useful technology when it comes to uh, fighting the climate crisis, which illustrates a broader point, is carbon capture. So there are a lot of potential ways to do this, um, either from the simplest, uh, which is planting forests, to more complicated uh, technological arrangements. But they all focus around the idea of, rather than reducing carbon emissions from whatever source, of taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, turning it into some sort of solid form and putting it somewhere. So in the case of forests, uh, trees obviously do this naturally. They take in carbon dioxide to respire and they turn it into themselves. Trees are a carbon store. Or um, in the more artificial versions of this, the carbon dioxide might be pumped deep, deep down into the ground uh, into sort of... Oh, 
very deep, I have another word. Um, deep places? <laughs> deep places into uh, cave systems that are miles underground uh, so that it can't get back out. Now, the uh, reason I say that this illustrates a wider point is that I came across an article on the internet a couple of weeks ago that said uh, carbon capture and storage is the only way to solve the climate crisis. And I came across an article on the internet last week saying anyone who believes that we can solve the climate crisis through carbon capture is an idiot. Um, and the argument for that latter one was that removing carbon from the atmosphere um, just encourages people to pump more of it up there and it's not going to solve the problem. The argument in the former was that even though um, even though we do need to reduce the amount that's, that's uh, being released into the atmosphere, um, what matters as far as global warming is concerned is the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, not the rate at which it's being put into the atmosphere. So even if we do manage to slow down the rate at which we add to it, we still need to start taking some away. And I think the point to bear out of this is that there is an unhelpful, um, there's an unhelpful narrative that pits different potential solutions to climate change against each other when actually they don't necessarily need to be seen as rivals and we can reduce carbon emissions and implement carbon capture and storage facilities. The two are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, and so in the in the very long term, what we're aiming for is, is drawdown or a reduction in the total amount of carbon uh, in the atmosphere. But we can move closer towards that without taking carbon out of the atmosphere um, through a huge variety of methods. Um, more efficient use of energy and more insulation, for example, reduces energy usage, uh, dietary shifts, shifting um, perhaps to a more vegetarian environment or to one which focuses more on local produce and less on... Uh, fruits, vegetables, meat that's been transported halfway around the planet. Um, another very promising avenue is, of course, renewable energy. So there is a popular misconception that renewables are very expensive and that's why they haven't yet cornered the market. That hasn't been the case for, for some time. So, yeah, so let, let's make a little quiz out of this. So in 2017, the, uh, the average cost of energy in North America in dollars per megawatt hour for coal was $100 per megawatt hour. What do you think it was for solar energy? I'm going to go for $85. Okay, um, it is lower, you're correct, but it's it's actually $50. And what do you think it was for wind? Uh, wind, I think, at the moment is cheaper than solar, so I'm going to go for 40 very close. So, uh, it's actually in the middle of the two, so it's $45. Um, and those are prices which have come down monumentally over the last 20 years. In 2009, um, solar was at over $350 per megawatt hour. So it's it's collapsed sevenfold in price um, over the last, well, over the last decade, really. Um, so the problem with renewables isn't really the cost. Um, the problems are more to do with the, the storage of the energy produced because uh, obviously, with things like solar energy or, or wind energy, uh, the wind's not always blowing, the sun's not always shining. That's not an issue. You can still generate the energy, but we need better systems of storage and the current uh, technology of lithium-ion batteries uh, is not really suitable for for large-scale uh, energy storage. So lithium-ion batteries are the kind of batteries that you'd have in your in your phone or in uh, in everyday electronics and 
uh, as anyone who's recharged their phone repeatedly will know, the battery tends to, uh, I don't know the scientific term for it, leak over time and the capacity decreases. So we don't really have anything for energy storage on the grid level scale that we need uh, to convert power grids to a renewable source. Although there is an interesting um, issue here about uh, international cooperation, because another solution that is proposed to this is that if you have a large enough grid that covers a large enough geographical area, then the sun will probably be shining somewhere, the wind will be blowing somewhere, um, it'll be the middle of the day when people aren't using a lot of energy somewhere. And that if you have a large enough grid covering a large enough area uh, and you're able to move electricity around there from where it's being produced to where it's needed, that uh, possibly overcomes the problem of not not having the sun shining at the same time as you need to be using the energy. Yeah, exactly. And those are, those are really managerial solutions rather than solutions requiring us to absolutely rework everything about uh, our way of life, their solutions to do with intergovernmental and interstate cooperation. And I guess if you look at the recent case of, of Texas, uh, it wasn't really a failing of renewable energy that, that caused the recent energy crisis, despite the claims of Fox News pundits. Uh, it's the fact that Texas had decided to detach its energy grid from the rest of the country and deregulate it. Uh, and therefore, when, when things went wrong, it didn't have any backup to fall back on. Uh, other than some parts of the west and north of the state, I believe, which were attached to uh, either the west or the east coast grids. The um, failure of Texas's uh, electricity grid actually is another good example of of another problem that we see all the time in the news uh, and on the internet, which is that it was a a general failing of power plants. There were a lot of renewable power plants that failed. Uh, There were a lot of non-renewable power plants that failed. And I've seen an extraordinary amount of coverage uh, or or commentary on the internet um, pointing to the failure of the renewable energy um, sources uh, claiming that these are useless and they can't possibly help us and we need to get rid of them and I've seen an extraordinary amount of commentary of people claiming that it was gas and coal fire power plants that failed and therefore the quicker we get to um, renewable energy the better and actually it was a pretty equal failing across both and there's nothing to do with that. Yeah and if, I think if you were to pin blame singularly on any one thing, not not say that there aren't multivariate causes, uh, it would be the, the state leadership refusing to pay the little bit of, of extra money to, to properly protect those power plants, both renewable and non-renewable, against freak weather events. Um, I mean, there are there are many wind power stations in much colder parts of the country which are perfectly able to hold up to cold temperatures if you properly design them in such a way. Um, but in the case of Texas, they cut corners, and that's why uh, it failed. So we've only got 40 minutes on this podcast, and we can't possibly go through all of the potential solutions to climate change uh, and how they work and what their drawbacks are and what the complications are. I think each of these uh, solutions is potentially a whole podcast in itself and we've only mentioned a couple. But from what we've said, I think there are still some um, lessons that we can draw. And I think the the key thing to take away from this is, firstly, we, we need to acknowledge problems when they happen Uh, whether on a global scale, a national scale, a very local scale. We need to acknowledge problems so that we have an idea of where we are and so we keep understanding the need for progress and pushing uh, for better policies and improvements in the current situation. But at the same time, we also need to be aware that 
the world, although it may seem very cold and dark and horrible, is better today than it has been at any other point in history, not just in terms of um, the Industrial Revolution and living standards, but in terms of protection of human rights, uh, reductions in war and conflict, and so on. And with the environment, as with any other major political issue, those negative effects being reduced or progress needs to be celebrated and recognised so that we don't fall into this general doom and gloom mentality. It's important to know where we are, what work still needs to be done, but it's also important to recognise how far we've come. Well, there's still a long way to go. There's still a lot of problems out there to be discussed and to be solved. So if you'd like us to discuss any of them, or if you'd like to discuss them with us, please do get in contact with us. You can email contact.theviolet at gmail.com. You can tweet us at at underscore the violet underscore, or you can contact us through the website. Thanks for listening.